0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Robert Henley reports for Public Radio, Salon, The Chief Leader and other news outlets, including this show where he follows political and economic developments with a particular focus on their effects locally. And Bob Henley joins us again now to discuss local and national politics and economics. Welcome back to our show, Bob. Just another quiet
1: month with armed insurrection and a global pandemic.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll touch on some of those things. But I want to talk about an article you reported on recently. Before he left office, Trump pardoned 70 people and commuted the sentences of 73 others. Uh, you recently reported on one of the the people who received a Trump commutation, a Florida ophthalmologist named Salomon Melgan. Hadn't he received a 17-year federal sentence for his conviction in a $73 million Medicare fraud case?
1: Indeed he had. Uh, this, uh, with the out-the-door mass pardon of so many, it was kind of like a jailbreak, right? Uh, yes, uh, Mr., uh, Dr. Melgan is— uh, Uh, Someone that people that follow New Jersey politics would know uh, if they had followed the career of Senator Menendez. Um, We went through quite a tribulation a few years back when uh, Dr. Melgan, along with Senator Menendez, uh, were indicted on corruption charges related to, well, in the case of Dr. Melgan, charges that he, um, you know, uh, ripped off Medicare uh, by coming up with surgeries that weren't required. And then, then in the case of uh, Senator Menendez, um, he was accused by the government of blocking tackling for Dr. Melgan in exchange for gifts um, and campaign contributions. Um, and of course, the Senator Menendez, while Dr. Melgan was convicted, Senator Menendez, uh, that jury, it was a hung jury. Uh, and the Trump uh, department of justice decided not to retry Uh, Senator Menendez, but um, the Senate ethics panel did severely admonish him for uh, not disclosing those gifts from Dr. Melkin for a number of years.
0: Now, uh, I want to understand this a bit because, uh, well, Melkin got 13 years shaved off of his sentence, Um, but uh, he has, as you said, the support of Bob Menendez. Uh, Bob Menendez is a Democrat. Um, Why would... uh, the Trump administration want to help a friend of a Democrat?
1: Well, I think that really, as we know, uh, party labels uh, are somewhat a distraction sometimes, and that in our feudal state, uh, which the insurrection kind of represents manifesting physically, right? Uh, there is a uh, there's a real politic of you know, doing things. There's been all kinds of conjecture here that, Perhaps uh, there was some reporting and analysis by uh, columnist uh, Paul Molshein from the Star-Ledger that it has to do with the fact that Attorney Abby Lowell, who was involved with Menendez's defense, was also close to the questioners. I mean, there's all kinds of, um, you know, uh, almost like tarot reading that you can do with these things. Mm-hmm. But as a practical matter, um, this is something where uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, he's going to be taking up residence in, in Florida there's been uh, speculation that he might want to have or his daughter might want to run and challenge uh, uh, Senator Rubio. And certainly it would be helpful uh, that someone like Dr. Melgen would would see that uh, he was uh, that President Trump had interceded on his behalf. I mean, to be fair, um, Menendez wasn't alone. There were dozens and dozens of folks, including charities and nonprofits and former patients who all spoke up on behalf of Dr. Melgan. In his application for a pardon.
0: Before we get back to Melgan, I'm I'm amused at the fact that uh, Ivanka may be running against Rubio, who has been one of the president's, former president's, staunchest supporters. (laughs) Loyalty (laughs) doesn't play in. There's no loyalty here, is there? No, no. So wasn't Dr. Melgan one of the nation's top Medicare billers? Uh, The DOJ alleged that between 2006 and, and 2013, he had taken close to $1 million worth of lavish gifts and campaign contributors. Oh, that, that was uh, Menendez, yeah. that Menendez had taken uh, that much money from Melgan in exchange for using the power of his Senate office to influence the outcome of uh, ongoing contractual and Medicare billing disputes that were worth tens of millions of dollars to Melgan. Also, to support well, the visa applications for several of Melgan's girlfriends, boy, this sounds like a movie.
1: Well, it's just constituent service,
0: Leonard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, well, he's a Florida doctor, and Men- Menendez is in New Jersey.
1: Well, actually, I mean, uh, both of them spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic, and so that's another aspect. When um, I was at WNYC, I did a lot of reporting that really tracked Medicare is just one part of the The stuff that uh, uh, Senator Menendez helped Melgan with. So Melgan also had uh, interest in a, a, a Dominican Republic port security screening contract. And so uh, basically anything that Dr. Melgan needed done, um, you know, his handyman around the Senate was and throughout the federal bureaucracy was uh, Senator Menendez. And so one of the problems has been that the Democratic Party, really rallied around Senator Menendez and there were, there was no doubt that there was some prosecutorial o- overreaches in the case. There was some uh, totally unfounded and uh, slanderous things that were surfaced, um, I guess, by some elements of the FBI, alleging all kinds of um, uh, sexual stuff that was going on and all kinds of, you know, stuff that was just basically, you know, kind of the stuff we've come to associate with, uh, you know, uh, uh compromise, you know, stuff that really doesn't have any basis in reality. And so but the the senator really, uh, I think, to this day and even after the hung jury, his attitude was that he was a victim, mm. uh, that he was a victim of uh, a prosecution that was political.
0: And he so said he did have Democrats. Yeah. Well, along those lines, he said the FBI and our state cannot understand or even worse accept that the Latino kid from Union City and Hudson County can grow up. And be a U.S. senator, and be honest.
1: Right, and so that—that that was his take, and I'm sure that's his take now. Uh, there is a, a, just a kind of fundamental belief that he is entitled. Um, and you know, he did uh, start his career on the right side of the law in the sense of uh, he was a, a critical witness at very young age against uh, uh, Mayor Musto in, in Union City, um, and so he did certainly come into. Uh, If with the Hudson County politics are notorious, and he certainly got his traction by by trying to break with that. But subsequently, um, what's what's just happened is the Democratic Party was just as blind when it came to Senator Menendez as what we're seeing now. When you have uh, Republicans like Hawley and Cruz carrying water for President Trump, it's basically Mm -hmm. and that to that degree. um, And I, I know even some boosters of Senator Menendez have said, you know, Ah, uh, were critical of me even writing a story like this because they're like, well, he's going to be chairman of the of the foreign relations committee. So th- there's this kind of uh, blind spot um, when it comes to you know we might we might say we had a similar situation with Senator Torricelli, where you know he resigned, um, other people went to jail, and that seems to be what happens in New Jersey with politicians. The people that hang with them go to jail um, and get hung, if you will, the mm-hmm. kind of phrase. And they go on and become consultants. I mean, that's that's just what we've seen.
0: Still, it's hard to understand why anyone would come to Melgen's offense. Um, the uh, Judge Kenneth Mara, who presided over his sentencing, said his practice, quote, was conducted in a manner where he routinely and as a matter of standard practice, diagnosed patients with medical conditions they didn't have in order to allow him to bill for diagnostic procedures and medical services that were not medically necessary or justified and uh, they would just, his treatments which uh, described the trial by expert witnesses as elder abuse unconscionable and horrifying uh, why would menendez want to come to his aid other than because there was some money in it for him
1: because i guess they also had a friendship of sorts and his understanding is that this good doctor is a philanthropist and provides probably some of this care at a discount or for free. Um, and, I mean, that's one of the things I'm in debt to the reporting that uh, I saw in the, uh, the Palm Beach Post. The Miami Herald did a much better job than the papers up here that are under the influence of the Democratic Party. And really, you know, I'm, I'm in their debt because it was only in that reporting that you got to read the granular description of the unnecessary procedures that were done to elderly people. I submit to you, he should have been criminally charged for assault. But this gets into this very strange world we're in, where if you're a lawyer or a doctor and your malpractice results in physical harm, it's a regulatory matter. It's a white-collar crime. And that's one of the things, just like, you know, I know we focus a lot on police and indemnification, that we need to put similar attention and a, a kind of bright light on this kind of malpractice and Medicare fraud that crosses over if it was done by anybody else as really criminal behavior.
0: So when Menendez was tried, uh, he uh, hung jury resulted in a mistrial. W- was the case not that was presented not all that strong?
1: Well, I think the lawyering was very
0: capable. I mean, I think
1: that um, they were able to uh, discredit, and that's where the government, the degree to which the government or anybody working for uh, the FBI and the DOJ, or even it's possible maybe that some propagandists got in the middle of it, but the way that they set this thing up and set up expectations because of the way they talked about all these untoward things which they could never make proof of didn't charge, they, they really didn't deliver the goods. And um, I mean, I think the other thing too here is that the timeline is very important because one of the things that happened is that the Senate, which is, you know, uh, the Senate Ethics Committee, they, they're not known for coming down hard on their members. And it's a bipartisan group that includes Democrats and Republicans. So for them to issue the kind of admonishment, and really, I, I don't, um, the fact that even to this day, that Senator Menendez should choose to weigh in on behalf of Melgan. I mean, what you have to ask yourself is, is he sure that there isn't some African-American or Latina individual who has been on the list uh, for a federal pardon that truly deserves it and that didn't get that place in line because the Senator once again came to the aid of Dr. Melgan?
0: Interesting. Well, uh, everything that has followed the, uh, the, well, in the last few days of the, the Trump presidency and what's followed has been fascinating and uh, I think uh, is going to lead to hundreds of books. Are you there, Bob? Yeah,
1: yeah I'm, I'm right here.
0: Don't you agree? I mean, this is one of the most fascinating moments in American history. uh, But I'm not sure that uh, I'm I'm, that I shouldn't be horrified by that fact.
1: Well, I I guess that there's um, we've been saying those who listen to our regular installments about this really aren't surprised. But Hmm. what we've seen is uh, the kind of jumping through into a new kind of history. So forever, we've thought of our elections and our uh, and the transition as something that was, you know, kind of normal. And now what we've seen is something very different where it resembles more like we've seen in, in countries with that don't have a tradition of peaceful transfer of power, more like something you'd see in a Caribbean country or a country recently re- released from colonial rule where it's based on which posse with the most guns mm. gets a hold of radio stations is in control of the country. That's kind of where we are. And so I think that in the, the mainstream media, the corporate media particularly, is trying to describe it in a frame of reference that that uh, tilted towards normalcy, because I think they're afraid of the implications of really just reporting how dire things are. I mean, you've got a two-track story that's happening. I opened up with jest on this, but the notion that um, and we don't see a connection between the stuff that Trump's doing in terms of sending this mob uh, aimed at uh, the democratic functioning and the peaceful transition of power, with the fact that on the way out, he totally um, uh, blew the vaccine program that he hyped so much, and that during his tenure he actually spread an infectious disease that is going to have generational consequences. And they don't put those things together. They're created. They're now reporting the pandemic as something that's kind of like a, a barometric condition. It's mm. partly cloudy and we've lost 4,000 people today. The stock market is up. So it's it's part of that kind of um, general, everything's kind of fine, and we really need to connect those things so we can drive the radical change that the moment requires.
0: And his defenders are accusing the Democrats of being divisive uh, and uh, pouring uh, fuel on a fire. <laughs> where have they been?
1: Right, right. Well, and I think that part of this comes from the fact that the storyline and controlling the storyline is to some degree gives you the ability to uh, slow the rate of inquiry. And so at its core, what this is about was an organized attempt to actually overthrow the United States government. And what we know, the facts we know on the ground is that for about an hour and a half to two hours, the president of the United States, then Donald J. Trump, did not uh, take any action and ignored requests for him to take only unique actions he could, which was to order in the National Guard. And that point, in fact, the person that did that was um, Vice President Pence, who himself was under a table somewhere in an undisclosed location. And so uh, more attention needs to be focused on what the president chose not to do. And then we also have at the same time more and more evidence that elements within the Capitol Police, both the command structure in terms of decisions not to deploy the National Guard and not to have a more robust um, response to the protesters, and then moreover, a kind of, if you will, uh, 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 bias that existed in terms of at the at the rank and file level where These officers, some of them didn't even see a risk when the angry horde came down. And in fact, some of them, no doubt, saw friends and relatives and so stood down. And so we still are not this this obfuscation by the Republicans permits us from getting the fact pattern, which is essential from a loss prevention standpoint. We still do not have a proper after action accounting for, for instance, what role did members of Congress play in helping reconnaissance and developing it. We have a significant involvement of active-duty law enforcement, active-duty military, and retired military in the command structure of this coup attempt, and we need to focus more and more on that.
0: Robert Henley is my guest on today's Letter located at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We've talked a lot in the past about what happened uh, in the aftermath of, the, of 9-11 and you wrote recently about efforts by advocates for participants in, in the 9-11 uh, World Trade Center health program to convince Governor Cuomo to expedite access to the coronavirus vaccine for the first responders and civilian survivors who are enrolled in the program who are already suffering from well many health conditions that make them more susceptible. Uh, so uh, weren't they high on the list of the earliest recipients? Well, first, um,
1: it's important to say that all uh, every category has a problem because we have a lack of the vaccine, which goes back to Donald Trump's yeah. catastrophic and willful failure to deliver it. Uh, but part two would be that the World Trade Center health program includes thousands and thousands of first responders, and um, it's also open to a lot of uh, survivors. And one of the things that's problematic here is only a fraction of the civil- civilian respond, uh, uh, civilians who are there who live in lower Manhattan and, importantly, western Brooklyn, because that was also part of the impact zone, um, even are aware that they may have some World Trade Center condition. And so uh, an example would be, I think there's 95% of the 95,000 first responders are enrolled in the program, and they are guaranteed an annual health screening as a consequence. Uh, and you're right, those people that are active first responders, depending on the civil service title, would be eligible. Uh, but there's a number who are under 65, uh, who are retired. And then you have the case, for instance, of the 19,000 school kids, K through 12, who were ordered unconscionably uh, back into their schools in lower Manhattan in western Brooklyn by Rudolph Giuliani under the notion, you know, uh, Chrissy Todd whitman the EPA, uh, said the air was safe to breathe. Remember that? In some ways, it all kinds of presages what we're living with now because was, the decision was made corruptly to uh, conceal and suppress the actual testing data about how toxic the air was. So we could open up wall street does that sound familiar to you um and so in the case of these folks that are needing this vaccine one they may not be aware we've got about 19,000
0: school children uh, who are now young adults and you, you, uh, you forgot to mention stuyvesant high school was also down right, there and
1: right that, and that would be and actually one of the great uh, uh, uh nyla nordstrom is leading
0: this group hmm. called
1: sty health and if anybody as a matter of fact, it's a public service. You should have Ron sometime, styhealth.org. It's a nonprofit committed to reaching out to young people who, as you know, have moved all over the country and may not know, even as they approach their, their prime reproductive years, not have a clue that, one, they have this, these potential conditions and cancers, and, number two, that they are at a higher risk because of COVID, because COVID is particularly difficult for folks with preexisting respiratory and cancer conditions.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, Rudolph Giuliani, also Michael Bloomberg. Uh, they both lied about the quality of the air after 9-11 and assured people that it was safe to return to the area. And didn't they also open up some some uh, government, bring back some uh, government offices to the area as well fairly soon?
1: Well, oh, there is I mean, there's there's so much. I mean, one of the great tragedies is. Uh, there was a lot. There was a mixture of goodwill, naivete, and real cynicism. Um, one of the things that has never been fully examined, but should be, is what the various elected leaders knew about it. We do know from an inspector general report that came out that was done by the EPA inspector general a few years after 9/11 that documented that the EPA suppressed information that showed that the air was like liquid Drano, that was you know vaporized Drano. Uh, and so there is an open question as to what degree did they make a kind of Faustian bargain like, well, it's better in the, in the, in the uh, short run and even the long run to get things back to normal and send a message to the terrorists that we're not going to take it. And uh, we still don't really know any of that. We still don't have any idea of what elected leaders knew. Um, but we do know that uh, the White House at, at the top level, got involved, and uh, was very much had their hands all over the press releases that came out that gave people this false sense of security. And even to this day, um, we have areas of uh, projects, nitre projects where the soil hasn't been properly tested, that
0: were that were very much affected by what happened on nine eleven and the cleanup afterwards. Pretty much all we hear about it these days is uh, a couple of commercials from law firms that are looking for people. Who might join in lawsuits about nine eleven?
1: Well, one of, that, and I have a pet peeve about that. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to say one of the things that I wish they would do, and and don't get me wrong, there is a number of those attorneys because uh, I do a lot of this work with trying to do advocacy on part of civil servants and survivors who get jammed up in the bureaucracy, and and many of them try to do good work, but that uh, graphic that they show. In, uh, repeated, shows a map that has to do with the Victims' Compensation Fund, the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund, part of this drug act, and that if you are in that lower Manhattan area, then you are in it south of Canal Street, then you're entitled to apply for financial damages, and it can be significant. But for the World Trade Center Health Program, the map would be include Houston and in South, and Western Brooklyn. And so there's thousands and thousands of people who look at that map and don't think that because it serves the lawyers to point out that, yes, to get the the payday that they need, you have to be in lower behind, but to get health care, uh, and this is really something that needs to be pointed out because we're talking about tens of thousands <laughs> of people, many of whom may have commuted through there. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that's uh, also problematic is the pandemic has made it harder to have meetings. One of the things that, that the chief leader, we, we've done a lot of work with trying to report on this, and, and there were meetings that could be held. There was a, a great meeting at the uh, Borough of Manhattan Community College where people could come and get information on it. And so I remember seeing a packed auditorium of former teachers, active professors, students, alumni who were able to uh, access, and John Stewart was at the event. It was very helpful. But now without being able to have these large-scale events, at the time, it's most important to inform people about what's going on. We don't have that option.
0: In your article uh, on this, uh, you quoted paramedic Gary Smiley, who is District Council 37's uh, local 2507 World Trade Center ombudsman, is saying, all of the members of our union that we lost to covid we're also WTC responders with significant WTC illnesses. So they're more vulnerable.
1: Oh, oh it is. I just have to shout out uh, Oren Barzillay, president of Local 2507, Gary Smiley, um, and then Vinci Barreale, Local 3621, the EMT officers. The, th- this There's so many unsung heroes that have been advocating for these people. I mean, We've had uh, the decimation to the civil service as a consequence, a double whammy of uh, 9/11 and then COVID is just—it's registering. And so I'm really I'm glad you mentioned it because I in the chief leader we have our circulation, but for whatever reason I just have not been able to get my colleagues in the media to pick up on this. I don't know if it's like oh we got a lot of death moving today—we're moving 400,000 corpses. We don't have time for that. That's a that's a you know mm-hmm. uh, it. It's even hard to get that attention. And I'm getting calls from individuals that this is a life or death situation who already were, you know, victimized by the federal government and are being victimized again.
0: Has Governor Cuomo weighed in on this?
1: Um, I haven't. um, You know, I every day I brush my hair and I put on my best shirt and try to get in those calls. I've only had one uh, uh, one opportunity question, and that was on the stock transfer tax. But uh, Mm -hmm. that's my next question. If I ever get in, that's what I'm asking.
0: Well, we uh, will talk a bit about the stock transfer uh, tax uh, after we take a little break. Uh, Is there anything else you want to say about this before we go to a break?
1: No, but I just would. um, One of the things, I'm at Stuck Nation, and so uh, I'm very much interested in hearing uh, from folks that have these issues. And um, it's very important that, you know, is that they that people who are, who are getting jammed up like this have a platform and a place that we can try to advance your issues.
0: So, how do they get in touch with you?
1: At Stuck Nation.
0: S T U S T U C K N A T I O N. Exactly. At Stuck dot com.
1: Uh, no, just Stuck Nation on Twitter.
0: Uh huh. Oh, okay. Well, you are listening to. Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI. Uh, I have not yet been banned by Twitter uh, on WBAI (laughs) New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. song whose lyric seems appropriate pretty much every day. I heard the news today, oh boy. Uh, before I return to my conversation with Bob Henley, I- I'd like to take a moment to ask you for your support, the WBAI. All independent media have been put into a difficult position by the pandemic, but as a small public radio station that relies completely on the generosity of our listeners, we're 100% listener-supported, we are in a particularly difficult spot. And that's why we're asking everyone who tunes in regularly to large, to step up right now and go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602. That's 516 516-620- 620 3602, to help keep this legendary free speech radio on the air. And one great way to support WBAI while giving us the kind of enduring support we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, You can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount. Bob, as someone who's worked for years in independent media and in public broadcasting, um, uh, public broadcast um, independent media is playing a, a very special role right now, don't you think? I do. And as someone
1: who's been fired twice by BAI and <laughs> Pacifica, how essential it is and it is an institution. Uh, I mean, right now, I was just on a phone with, um, had a little conference with Max Mazzura, who's the editor of Insider NJ, which is another place I write for. And we were talking about the unique challenges in this pandemic environment because, uh, you know we have the media now is is becoming increasingly corporatized and so what you have is the concentration of power in fewer and fewer hands at a time when working people are having a harder and harder time and it's harder for them to get their issues on any platform and so what you have is aggregating of content um to the point that even people that create the content don't see it i mean i have stories that appear online i get paid for it once and then it gets used multiple times and feeds all kinds of advertising. I don't see any participation in that. And so the question becomes, how do you have uh, some kind of command and control system where the people of this country have the ability to access information platforms to, one, speak to the issues of the day and hold accountable the leadership that they elect? And that's been short-circuited. And we see the results with uh, the with Donald Trump and then What's happening now, and so without some kind of platform, then you're not going to be able to have any ability to address the issues that are increasingly uh, dominating our lives. I mean, literally, life and death matters when you consider what's happening with the pandemic. And the other aspect of this that I, you know, I would say that BAIs has played a critical role in the ability of um, uh, our the progressive movement in this country. Uh, and indeed, the world to be able to have any kind of uh, response to the Trump years. And if you look at the voices that you hear now, and and the direction on everything from police accountability to uh, the healthcare industry, that critique and that analysis um, that's born of people making observations, not because there's some commercial interest, but because they've had the discipline of inquiry you've heard those issues raised here for decades mm-hmm. and so now's time to give back to that because now more than ever there's a need to open this aperture to have more and more uh, of a more of a robust platform for these issues to be discussed
0: and since we don't take advertising uh it is uh we're really dependent on our listeners. Uh, I worked in public broadcasting before, where we did take advertising. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it made life a little easier. Uh, it did cut down on the amount of time that I could talk to a guest because we had to break for what we call funding credits, which are actually commercials. Uh, but uh, we are hoping, especially during this uh, this crisis time, when some people can no longer afford to support us. Many of our regular supporters uh, have uh, been forced for financial reasons to, uh, to stop for the moment. We're asking all people who can to come through for us, please, again, the number is five one six six two zero three six zero two, or you can go online to WBAI.org, and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, Thank you. And my guest is Robert Henley, a veteran journalist. And um, as he points out, somebody who has worked at WBAI in the past. Well, that's a whole other story. Uh, yeah, it sure is. One of the things that we do is invite listeners to join in the conversation. And a listener, uh, Jeffrey, has written this. He says, is it true that the radios used by the police and or firemen had been shown prior to 9-11 to be inadequate to communicate from outside with first responders inside the the World Trade Center buildings and yet were used? Is it true that the fighters inside the second building to fall had not known that the first building had fallen? Uh,
1: This is something that— We've reported on, I've reported on a lot. Uh, this is, it's actually just the firefighters' radios. Uh, this is another one of those things that uh, uh, that Rudolf Giuliani is, uh, certainly uh, should account for. Um, after the first World Trade Center attack in the early 90s, um, when the uh, fire department uh, did an after-action report, which is what they do, they realized that they didn't have the ability to talk to uh, people. Uh, the command structure wasn't able to reach out to the firefighters on the ground. And this had to do with the nature of the construction of the World Trade Center and also the fact that Port Authority, as people know, have been around for a while. It's like a sovereign government. It's its own entity. It's like a duchy, like the Vatican. So they have a different standard on a lot of things. So they realized, like, well, listen, these analog radios we're using, they, they were— Uh, really bad. And so we need to come up with something else. And so during the period of time of Giuliani's administration, they went around and around. They tried to use the digital thing. They put it in the field and it ended up that it didn't work. Uh, Giuliani bypassed the regular bidding process for something that didn't work. And then, of course, the very capable folks at Randall's Island to test all these things were like, hey, tell the bosses this is working. And so they wasted years and years and years just in time uh, so that before nine eleven, they gave them back the substandard analog radios that they
0: knew would not work in the world trade center and so but did giuliani they, blame it all on venezuela
1: no uh the audio, and hugo chavez he did not but one of the things no one's really held him account for it. this is a very Inside baseball, you have to be Mm -hmm. a real geek to know this story or have lost somebody or reported. But so the International Association of Firefighters did a documentary about this. And it was one of the pivotal things that resulted in the campaign of Giuliani collapsing. Um, It is uh, something IFF firefighters who followed this are clear that at least I think it's some 100, maybe more out of the 343 perished when they didn't hear the order. Uh, to evacuate the building. This was dealt with by the 9-11 Commission, uh, but once again, um, Giuliani benefited from the glow given to him by the press corps, mm-hmm. um, and he was going to be America's mayor no matter what. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that when he was a prosecutor, he used to give anonymous tips about which perps he was going to arrest. And so to some degree, Rudy Giuliani is a creation of the media. And so now, you know, there's a lot of people that have paid the price for that. But that's a very important point about this. And to this day, even, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on interoperability. Uh, we saw that come up in the after-action stuff about what happened at the Capitol. Um, and then also it, it, things as basic as um, how often do we have, even to this day, um, the self-service platform, because we've let Telcom run the show. Uh, We don't have a robust enough cell system, and so when you need the cell phone the most, people probably notice during the storm that when you dial into Mm 911, there's a fairly good chance on some occasion you will get, sorry, we can't answer it because the call volume." So, yeah, that's that's an important story. We shouldn't forget it.
0: And we thank Jeffrey for writing in about it uh, uh, and remind listeners that if uh, you want to to write during a show. Um, my email address here is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Um, there was, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the uh, the proposed stock transfer bill. There was a Zoom meeting this morning about it. By uh, it's it's in the New York state legislature, intended to lift New York out of the COVID-19 economic crisis and, and rebuild the infrastructure. Um, uh, can you explain?
1: Sure. So this was something that um, back in 1905, a Republican governor in New York State, uh, facing a $5 million, that's with an M, uh, budget crisis, decided to go with this. And it is uh, five cents, that would be a nickel, uh, per $100. That's a nickel uh, for $100 worth of a stock transfer. That was what the tax was. And so at the time, the New York Times uh, predicted that it would be the end of Wall Street. Wall Street would move to New Jersey. And then they had to retract the editorial because it worked out fine. And so the state of New York collected that. Um, and then up around the early 1980s, um, you had uh, Governor Kerry and Mayor Beam decide that they would, you know, uh, uh, rebate it back to Wall Street Uh, Let them keep it. And so this way would entice them to stay. And so we haven't collected that nickel uh, since. And so uh, Senator James Sanders and uh, Senator Phil Stack from up around Schenectady are trying to have us um, shift and just turn the button on. So we start collecting it. And it's estimated that since we stopped collecting it, it's like over $400 billion. In the last 10 years, it's around $138 billion that we have turned over to Wall Street. And what have we done instead, Leonard? We've borrowed. And who is that money going to? Well, it goes in the forms of debt service, hmm. which is- To Wall, Wall Street. Street. Doesn't Exactly. Now you're getting the picture.
0: So uh, there was a Zoom meeting. Uh, did you watch it?
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was on it. I was kind of uh, interested. It had some. Uh, you had CW uh, International President John Samuelson, Mark Henry, ATO Local 1056, Glory Middleton, CW 1180, um, and then James Henry, uh, an economist. Uh, basically, it was a, a conversation about what has COVID done to uh, the public workforce, and what are the impl- economic implications of not doing something significant. Uh, and there's also, you know, there's a there's a reliance on the fact that uh, uh, President Biden has been elected, and so the political class, um, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo, they're taking the attitude that they can get it all from Washington, and that we don't really need to put anybody out. And yet, you know, there is a, a growing sense that the the ability of the idea of being reliant on Washington, especially when we know. That during this period of time, Wall Street has experienced this dramatic increase in the share of national wealth. And so the only way to have any kind of long-term change and to stop this business of debt service and to begin to invest in the things that are required, I mean, what it's going to take to deal with climate change and to to build a resilient infrastructure. Uh, I mean, even, you know, one of the things that we have to address here, for instance, is everyone is noticing, oh, we're so surprised access to the is based on where you live and whether or not you're a person of color. And if you're a person of color, knock me over, you have a hard time getting access. Well, Mm -hmm. has anyone figured that we've been closing hospitals in communities of color my entire life as a journalist, which is a very long time? And so where is the money going to come from? It's going to have to be more robust and more consistent than just whatever Washington decides it wants to give us on the short term.
0: And ironically, at a time when we celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., people of color are dying at a disproportionate rate during this once-in-a-century public health crisis.
1: Well, and that is, uh, without a doubt... uh, Back to 9-11, it
0: it kills more people in a single day than died on 9-11.
1: Right. And so this This has to do with the fact that America's population is more chronically ill, and that is because we have been restricting healthcare based on the ability to pay. That's been the rationale. I think we just lost you. Leading into this, for three years, there was a decline in American life expectancy. Three years in a row. Do you know the last time that happened? Was well, leading uh, into the great pandemic in 1918.
0: I was going to guess. 1918 or, uh, as uh, Donald Trump said, the great pandemic of 1917. <laughs> I don't know why he never corrected that. But then again, he he never corrected uh, calling the Appalachian Trail the, uh, what did he call it? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. I was talking about
1: the airport secured during the American Revolution.
0: That was <laughs> the one that stuck in my brain. Yes. Yes. We have to worry about Thailand. <laughs> and, because they might attack the Yosemite. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people who are sending me these uh, these posts claiming that Joe Biden is, uh, is uh, suffering from dementia. It's... We, People who don't see any problem with what with all the things we've been saying about Donald Trump.
1: Well, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that anything that that's kind of a distraction. Uh, But I'm glad I'm sure that they feel empowered that you mentioned it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You also reported that unions that represent close to two million federal workers are, are praising President Biden's uh, revocation of three executive orders by then President Trump in 2018. What did they do?
1: So uh, right from the very beginning, this has been underreported because.
0: Oh yeah. By the way, so a listener, Alyssa tells me it was the Appalachian Trail. He called it the Tallahassee Trail. I just want to clear that up. <laughs> yeah, Florida is always on his mind. Thanks. Um,
1: one one of the things is that this has been underreported, but. Uh, starting since the early 60s, uh, the federal workforce uh, has had the option to belong to a union and benefit from collective bargaining. Um, not so much for wages, which is Congress's function, but for terms and conditions of employment, things about advancement, uh, things like occupational exposure, hours, all the things that really define your workplace. And historically, both Democratic and Republican administrations um, Uh, really had no problem with this. And it's important to understand the roots of the civil service really are like the eighteen eighties when the Pendleton Act was passed and then um, with Garfield's assassination, President Garfield was assassinated by a frustrated office, would-be office holder who felt he was owed patronage. Um, The nation decided that it needed to depart from the notion of patronage. And for, you know, for much of the early part of this nation's history, Um, patronage at at every level, but particularly the federal level, was assigned to you if you're elected official, so you could point whoever you wanted to at these levels of jobs that are about things like the post office. Well, this decision to have uh, a professional, uh, uh, merit-based, nonpartisan cadre of uh, government officials got traction, and and it pretty much enjoyed support. And then when Trump came in, um, he made a point of targeting it, because there are certain folks from, you know, uh, the right-wing think tanks, they're all of a sudden given a chance to – and we've seen this, right? We saw him put in someone who was against labor to dismantle the labor department. We saw him put in someone who was against the environmental movement and environmental regulation charge of the EPA. Similarly
0: – And education, in charge, Betsy DeVos. Right,
1: exactly. So the mission was to deconstruct the regulatory state and this meritocracy – And this, uh, the actual the government, and so while a lot of attention was paid to what was happening, um, you know, uh, in uh, in the top level positions, they were busy taking apart the engine room, the actual thing. Like, and so that would include the EPA scientists, the USDA scientists, the Food Inspection Service, the people that actually hold corporations accountable, which is something that since going back to Theodore Roosevelt and to. Um, the reforms of the meat industry. This is something we had had a bipartisan uh, agreement on. So he went after it by making it so that unions couldn't represent federal workers, trying to toss them into the workplace, cutting them out of any kind of advising consent, making it so that they couldn't help uh, communicate whatever messages were required for management. So this had a real impact during the pandemic because in the past, when there had been local threats of some kind, the management union relationship was important to get the word out to keep federal workers and the public safe, but by going to war with the unions, he had blown up that. And so um, he, uh, President Biden, reversed that by getting rid of those executive orders. And one of the things that's another thing that's just not gotten attention, with the exception of Rachel Maddow's reporting on uh, what's happened to meat processing plants in the country. Um, President Trump um, spread COVID because. From the very beginning, the first reports we had, and we, I think we even talked about it on your show, was the uh, COVID virus was, uh, showed up in, at Heathrow with TSA-type workers, uh, their British equivalents, getting the virus. It then jumped to California, to Mineta Airport in San Jose. And then the TSA had members get sick, and the union, AFG, American Federation of Government Employees, asked for masks, asked for testing, and were denied. And this happened in every place, and this includes Veterans Administration hospitals, imagine how many there are there, Bureau of Prison Facilities. I mean, basically every federal installation in all the territories and in all the states, the workforce was put on the front lines without any of the basic protections that were required. And that resulted in a huge amount of death, which no one wants to talk about. And so... As a consequence, there was some um, PPE that was rolled out, but it was all too late. And the implications here are uh, the other tragedy here is that so much of the civil service are people of color. And in this case, it spread to their families. And it is just horrific. And there still hasn't been an accounting for it. And I submit to you that uh, one of the other things that hasn't gotten as much attention is President Biden has also come up with, a a nationwide requirement that on federal property and in federal workplaces that these basic CDC protocols uh, be followed. And I might say, we've been
0: flying for a year without them. Can you imagine? And now Republicans are complaining that some of the things that he's asking for are just too expensive. Do you think that the Republicans in Congress will support his call for a $15 minimum wage, or at least a $15 minimum wage among government workers?
1: Well, I mean, I think the uh, it's, it, this is something where if you look at someone like Florida, right? So you had um, Trump be able to carry the day there, and I don't think Democrats made the score down ballot that they'd hoped. Uh, but in that state, in that election uh, just held, the the minimum wage, the fifteen dollars minimum wage, resonated with with workers, with uh, voters of all parties and in independents, and that's starting to happen around the country. Um, we, we have a situation where um, we're, we've never had a greater disparity between the wealth of the elected leadership and the people that they're supposed to serve. And it's getting to the point of such a grotesque gap uh, that I think you might see a few peel off. Um, and I think that you're going to see uh, the Democrats, this is a place where they have to flex their muscle, I mean, they're going to have to demonstrate in short order uh, competency and uh, some kind of immediate transformation that is tangible that working people feel. Otherwise, I I fear that um, in in 2002, uh, 2022, the tide will go back out again towards the Republicans.
0: It should be pointed out that a fair number of the Democrats in Congress are millionaires as well.
1: Oh, no, I'm not. This is an equal right. I'm not saying that. Yeah, that's right. It's a critique of both parties.
0: So, what are you covering right now? We only have a, a minute or two to to go. But uh, what what story are you on right now?
1: So, um, right now, I'm I'm working through um, the issue of the vaccines and the impact on uh, the um, the disparity issue and how it's playing out and the degree to which we may have people using influence or wealth uh, to get access to the vaccine and jumping ahead of line of. Deserving members of the community and first responders and healthcare workers. Doesn't that sound like fun?
0: Mm. Well, I don't know whether any of the things that you do get you up to the front of the line. Uh, Bob Henley reports for public <laughs> radio, for Salon, for the chief leader. What else?
1: Uh, Insider NJ, uh, WBGO, um, and I show up on uh, with John Fugleskin and Sirius uh, FMs with some
0: regularity. And, of and, course, and also WMYC at times. And, uh, yeah, I I, rarely. <laughs> I, and I thank you so much for being on our show again. And pleasure. we'll see you real soon, I hope. All right. Take care. Thanks. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at our website. W, uh, it's com. And if you'd like to comment about anything that you've heard on the show, simply want to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at WBAI.org. A listener, a couple of listeners did that today uh, to add to the conversation. And you're always welcome to join the conversation. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic and uh, we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to become a member by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And we hope that you will consider becoming a sustaining member of BAI Buddy, which means that... Uh, uh, you will be giving us $10, 15 $20, whatever you're comfortable with, a month to help us keep this whole thing going, keeping this show going and keeping this station going. So please call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and be sure that you're doing it uh in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And then we also hope that you can join us on tomorrow's show when Jonathan Daniel Wells will discuss his new book. Interestingly, uh, follow-up to what we were saying about Wall Street, the book is The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery, and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. We'll see you then.